Well, our world today from Times Square to the Fayetteville Square is full of images, logos, symbols, and slogans. The aim is simple, helping the consumer find that which they're looking for or instructing the consumer in that which they didn't know they were looking for, but now they desperately need. A secondary reason for that is to help the companies that are providing these needs or services to market themselves such that when a consumer does at 3 o'clock in the morning decide, you know what, I think I do need that hoverboard. They go to Amazon and they buy a hoverboard, which later explodes, only to find that that wasn't covered in the limited warranty. So these companies are marketing themselves in order that consumers would know who to use when their time is to buy the product that they're looking for or the services that they're offering. It's not true for companies only, but it's also true for people as well. We use symbols and slogans and various marketing in our own lives. Millions of dollars are spent by companies to brand themselves, to give them the upper hand with meaning, even within their meaning, within the meaning in their logo. Political parties use symbols to distinguish their affiliation. Motorcycle groups identify themselves with leather and logos and a common name. Camps use different colors to mark off the various tribes that they have within their own camps. Sports teams have home jerseys and away jerseys. They have mascots all to mark off their teams. The LGBT community uses the rainbow flag. And even weddings now have to have their own hashtag. If you're getting married soon, I'm very supportive of you, and I'm ready for that phase to be over. But what marks the Christian? What it What is it that marks off the life of a believer? Is it church attendance? Is that what it is for us? Is it getting first place in the Bible drill? Is it faithfulness in the spiritual disciplines? You know, sadly, for many in our community and cities around the world, on Sundays, if you're you're on wait staff at a restaurant, poor tippers and bad manners are what make up the church in the minds of many in the service food in the food service industry politically the church is getting bashed for being intolerant hateful and full of bigots because primarily of a desire to hold fast to conservative values that we believe the bible holds fast to what does the bible say about what marks off a christian Interestingly, Jesus didn't charge his disciples to set themselves apart by wearing crosses around their necks or WWJD bracelets or even, or even a bumper sticker on the back of their car that says, my boss is a Jewish carpenter. Perhaps you've seen that one. Perhaps you have that one. <laughs> he didn't tell them to tell everyone that, he, that they came into contact with to have a blessed day, though that's a fine thing to do. Rather, he gave them one simple command. Love 
one another. And he told them that it would be their love for one another that would be his witnesses to a lost world. That would show that they were his disciples if they loved one another. Pretty simple, right? Well, our text in 1 John today is going to help us further understand what it is that God intends to mark off those that are his. And if you're joining us today, perhaps for the first time, we're in a short two-week series called Children of God out of the book of 1 John. Last week, we saw that children of God hate sin, and they do this with a present abiding faith that's grounded in a future hope. We'll revisit that a bit this morning. 1 John is a letter written primarily to churches in and around Ephesus who are experiencing difficulty with false teaching and discouragement around the person and work of Christ that's been called into question by some. In 1 John 2.19, we see that false beliefs led a group who went out from among the believers with the purpose of spreading their views, which in turn caused confusion and discouragement to the believers who did affirm the incarnation, Jesus' sonship, his resurrection, and right living as a result of those. There are some who had gone out from among the brothers in these churches that were teaching a false gospel, denying that Jesus was the incarnate Son of God who came in the flesh. It was these false teachers that called into question the necessity of Jesus' death for the forgiveness of sin. And John writes this letter to these brothers to focus their attention back on the basics of the Christian life, namely, right believing, right living, and love for the brothers or love for one another. The letter's meant to encourage the believer. It's meant to bolster their faith, pointing them away from these false teachers threatening the church. We said last week that a summary statement for the book of 1 John might sound something like this. Right belief in Jesus will result in right living for Jesus. Right belief in Jesus will result in right living for Jesus. Our title for the sermon today is Children of God Love Others. I want us to read 1 John 3, 11 through 24. And if you're here this morning and you didn't bring a Bible, it's no problem. Right in front of you in the seat back, you'll find a Bible. You can turn to page 1022 and find John 3, 11 through 24 there. Let's read that together now. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brother, that the world hates you. We know that we passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not abide in death, whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this shall, shall we know 
that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. John uses comparison and contrast in this letter to show us that the call to love one another is made possible by those who abide in Christ. Our comparisons and contrast we'll find throughout our time together are the life of Cain and the life of Christ. The practice of evil versus the practice of righteousness. The ways of the world versus the ways of the believer. Perhaps you're helped like I am by a one-sentence summary of passages This morning's sentence would be this. Right belief in Jesus overflows in love for one another. Right belief in Jesus overflows in love for one another. Our sermon today will have three points. The call to love. Verses 11, 14, and 16 through 18. The caution to avoid. Verses 12 through 15. And finally, the confident assurance, verses 19 through 24. Let's look now at the call to love. Beginning in verse 11, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Notice that John takes us back, even in that sentence, to the prologue of his letter. First John 1, 1 and 2, remember, I'm sorry, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaim to you eternal life. John gives his readers the basis for the love of the father. And he does that by pointing them back to the gospel, back to the message of Christ. They're to model and emulate the person work of Christ. And we know from Philippians chapter two, We have quite a task to model and emulate the ministry and the life of Christ. Listen, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 say this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Praise God. The weight of verse 11 is all the more powerful when we consider John's gospel. Jesus' own words to his disciple, disciples before he was crucified were these. In John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know 
that you are my disciples if you love one another. John grounds his charge to love one another in the message he too heard from the beginning, the message of love that originated in the love of Christ, Jesus sent from the Father. The call to love is a message of Christ and it's rooted in the person and work of Jesus. First John 4, 10 and 11 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Love is rooted in the person and work of Jesus. And those who are in Christ must stand opposed to the work of the devil, the example of Cain, and the ways of the world. For these things are contrary to the things of Christ. John takes his audience back to the foundations of their faith, the very words of Christ, and he grounds their faith there and then calls them out of that foundation to love one another. We see in verse, 10, verse 14, we know that we have passed out of life into, or out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Love is a litmus test for those who are in Christ. If you love your brothers and sisters in Christ, that's a mark that you've received eternal life, that you've been made new in Christ. We know that this is, he uses that phrase, we know. That's meant to be a, a confident assurance to the believer. And likewise, the contrast is clear. If you do not love, then you abide in death. In other words, if you do not love one another, then you remain in your sinful state. You abide in death. The call to love is continued on in verses 16 through 18. Again with that phrase, by this we know, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. How do we know love? John says, by this, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. John means to bolster their faith. By this we know. Jesus is the source of love. And by him and only through him do we truly know love. And it is by his love, a love that willingly laid down his own life, that we ought to love the brothers. The word ought in the original language carries the sense similar to um, uh, obligation. Probably the best way to think about it. So by this, we ought to, or we are obligated to lay down our life for our brothers. Not an obligation in the same way you think about paying taxes, for that's the obligation of every American citizen. More like an obligation that a father feels when he gets home from work and his children come running to him. He feels obligated to scoop them up in his arms and give them a hug, to tell them that he loves them. 
This obligation that John calls us to is one of delight, not one of duty. Make no mistake, love for your brothers in Christ and your sisters in Christ will be hard. It will be costly. It will take time. It will have an emotional toll. It will take emotional energy. It will take much prayer. But also know this. The Lord has called us to it. And he's pleased when we obey this command. For love of others is a supernatural denial of self. One place there by God. I want you to notice the similarities in 1 John 3.16 and John 3.16. 1 John 3.16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is the gospel message. For without Christ... Just as John prayed earlier, we are like Cain. We are evildoers bent on our own way and seeing little need for God. We were children of the world with the devil as our father, full of envy, full of pride, full of jealousy, full of hate. And yet, Romans 5, 6-11 says this, For while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if... While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by faith. Reconciled to God by death in his son, sorry. Much more now that we have been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Christ, uh, sorry, Cain's offering was not pleasing to God, but Abel's was. Because Abel gave his offering according to the way God asked for it. Cain burned with anger against his brother. But it was his sin, the evil in his own heart, that raged against his brother. It was Cain's sin then that led him to murder his brother. And our sin, while it may not result in the death of another, our sin and all sin separates us from the love of God the Father, from a holy God. Our life can be pleasing to God only through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. And praise God for the truths of his word. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the good news of the gospel. Sinners can be reconciled having their sins separated from them as far as the east is from the west. Again, in John's gospel, in verse uh, 17 and 18 of chapter 10, John writes, for this reason, he records Jesus saying, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. 
I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus did lay down his life, and he did take it up again. He was crucified, buried, and on the third day he arose, forever breaking the bonds of sin and death for all who would believe in him. And if you're here this morning and you would not consider yourself a Christian, let me encourage you to think about this gift that God offers you in Christ. Your present hope can be grounded in a future reality as a child of God. God calls you then to repent of your sins, confess them to him and believe that he is the Christ. And in believing, you have life. If you want to visit with somebody about that more following the service, our elders and many of our staff are available down front and at the doors. We'd love to visit with you more about what that means to follow Christ. Let's turn our attention back to these verses. John's audience was the church, those who do consider themselves followers of Jesus. And he calls them to remember that we know love because Christ first loved us and that this love should compel us to love one another to the glory of God the Father. Verses 17 and 18 tell us that we are to love one another. John simply says, if you have anything, any of the world's goods and your brother's in need, you should meet his need for this pleases God. Which begs the question, well, who is my brother? Galatians 6.10 says, as we have opportunity... Let us do good to everyone, and especially those that are of the household of faith. That means that we bear a particular responsibility to Christians, and even more so, we bear a particular responsibility to those within this membership. As we've covenanted together to live out the truths of this gospel together, we bear particular responsibility to one another. But what it doesn't mean is that for those that are not in this body or those that do not consider themselves to be Christians, that we bear no responsibility. For that was not the message of Jesus. Jesus would regularly meet the needs of people and use that as an opportunity to speak to them about their spiritual condition, and so too should we. I trust that over these next days and weeks, there are going to be plenty of opportunities within our community to meet the needs of those who have lost much. And may continue to do so through these heavy downpours of rain. So note that we bear particular responsibility to one another. But we're not free from responsibility to those that are in a world. Remember that it is by our love one for another that the world will know that we're his disciples. So in how we love one another, that's a good testimony to the gospel. But with broken hearts, we meet the needs of those that the Lord places in our path. John says to see your brother in need, a need that you are able to meet and not do so, should cause you to evaluate whose you are. Are you of the world or are you of Christ? For God did not spare his own son. How can we withhold that which, which, that which God has allowed us to have when we see our brother in need? Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. It's all his. And he's allowed you to have what you have. And he calls you to be a good steward or a good manager of that which you have. But not so that you can hold it all for yourself, 
but that so you can use it as a means to bless others to the glory of God. We're to model our life after Christ in meeting the needs of our brothers and sisters in three, by doing three things. First, we're to see the need of our brother. You can't meet a need that you don't know exists. And oftentimes we're in and out. Maybe we're here only um, for services. We don't, we're not in, engaged in any form of community. And it's difficult for us to know the needs of those around us. So first we have to see the need. We're looking. We're listening. We're aware of the need. Secondly, we give willingly to our brother. Just as Jesus laid down his life, not under compulsion, but willingly. We give willingly. And third, we give sacrificially to our brother because it was our Lord's model who laid down his life sacrificially that we might have life. And therefore, we give in ways that cost us something. That's a challenge for us. Oftentimes, you guys, we want to give only out of the overflow or the abundance of what we have. But our Lord laid down his life sacrificially, sparing not even his own life that we might have life. And sometimes, through much prayer and counsel, the Lord calls us to give in ways that cost us something. May that be true for us ever more so. So how might loving one another look like even within our own body? Well, loving one another is attending services regularly as you're able, because it's difficult for us to live out the one another's if we're not one anothering together. Likewise, it's a challenge for your elders to lead sheep that aren't here. So as we do member interviews, we talk about the power of presence being one of the greatest gifts you can give the church to be here, to participate. Loving one another is seeking to care for those families in our church that feel called to foster and adopt. They often have needs for prayer, for encouragement, for a meal, perhaps for babysitting where appropriate. And for fellowship. Loving one another might mean parking a little bit further away from our campus than you prefer to open up a space for someone who might need it a bit more than you do. Loving one another might be budgeting in such a way that you have a line item in your budget designated to bless others within our own body. It's marked off for that. Loving one another might look like joining a life group and committing to doing the one anothering of Scripture together in a small group. Loving one another might look like serving faithfully in an area where you're most needed and doing so joyfully. Again, as I do member interviews, if somebody says, hey, I'm willing to serve, plug me in. I ask them, hey, are you willing to serve only in such and such area or wherever you're needed? Knowing that it's not signing off your life, but the reality is we have needs within the body that sometimes not anybody wants to do. Or that nobody wants to do. And it takes the willingness of one who says, hey, listen, I'll do whatever is needed so that the gospel can go forward. And it's not limited to that. Praise God for all of us, all of you that are serving faithfully in areas where you feel called, that you are equipped, that you are trained to do so for the glory of God. Loving one another might also look like encouraging those in leadership around you with cards or phone calls or words of encouragement. It might look like giving cheerfully to meet the needs of the body. It might look like listening to a brother or sister with compassion. It might look like seeking out the love or to love 
someone who may be a little bit more challenging for you to love because that's a tangible way in which you can die to your own preferences and live for the glory of God in relationship. Or today, a unique opportunity. We can love one another by eating to the glory of God. Wonderful homemade spaghetti that I promise will not disappoint. And all of those funds that are generated, they don't go to WeCare's operating budget. They go to scholarship families in need that are going to have their children an opportunity to hear and be a gospel foundation laid for their children from their, their pre-kindergarten years. That's what your money goes to support today. Well, this list is like a list we've been working on in our own family where over the dinner table we might ask a question like this. Hey, as you think back on your week, where are you able to give praise to God or even your day? Because sometimes we're so busy just going about our day that we forget to give praise to God. We're real easy to bring our request to God. But we don't always stop and give praise to God. And a list of how we might love one another and a list of how we might give praise to God, though different, should come to us with ease. Because this charge to love your brother is a call to all believers not just the ones who have gifts of mercy and compassion or those who have abundant resources. John writes, if anyone has the world's goods, God intends for those who are in Christ to love one another joyfully, sacrificially, and willingly. To not love in this way is like a supercharged sports car that never leaves the, uh, the manufacturing line. Or like a kite who never feels the wind lifted into the atmosphere. Jesus made you for this purpose, to love him and love your brothers in Christ. You know, when I was a kid, I can remember my mom telling me that love is not merely what you say, but it's evidenced in the way that you live or the things that you do. In other words, it's easy to say the words, I love you, but it's quite another thing to show love to another. John's call here is similar, that we not pursue Uh, loving one another in our speech only, but in deed and in truth. Because Jesus is the source and the example of our love, we're to lay down our life for our brothers joyfully. This is the call to every believer. In fact, it's the one of the qualifications for elders is that they shepherd the flock among you, not under compulsion. In other words, your elders pray for each other and invite you to pray for us that we would shepherd you willingly, never under compulsion. And praise God for those men who serve faithfully in that way. The call to love is rooted in the sacrifice of Christ. And we too are called to love as he did laying down our life for the brothers. And when we follow the example of Christ... And love, as a loving sacrifice of God, that allows us, uh, his sacrifice allows us right standing with him. We too then can love others out of that same overflow. I do want to turn our attention now to focus on a call to avoid from 1 John three twelve through 15. And again, John uses contrast here to illustrate his point. Note the differences between the section that we just read and the one we're about to read. The caution to avoid, beginning in verse 12. We should not be like Cain, 
who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brother, that if the world hates you, you know that uh, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So in contrast to the call to love, as John transitions into this caution to avoid, we see several contrasts to note. The contrast of the evil of Cain compared to the righteousness of Christ, the contrast of evil and righteousness itself, and the contrast of the world or the ways of the world and the ways of the believer. We've already seen how Jesus came to do the will of his Father, to lay down his life in obedience to God, and in so doing, dealing Seth dealing sin and death, its final blow. This call is for the believer to not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and then murdered his brother. Why did he murder his brother? Well, the text tells us because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Cain murdered his brother because of the sin in his own heart, and that sin manifested itself in murder. Sin that originated in the garden from Satan, who is the father of lies. Remember, it was Jesus' own words in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, where he calls the believer to consider that even while they may not have ever physically murdered someone, he says to hate someone in your heart is to murder them in your heart. And the Lord has no caveats to this. Instead, the believer is called to love those who persecute them and pray for their enemies. We need the Spirit of God to help us in this endeavor because when we feel wronged, we're more likely to attack like a mama bear who fears for their cubs than we are to respond like the spotless Lamb of God. Do you have unforgiveness in your heart today? I pray that you see it as a dividing wall between you and God, not between you and another person. Why do I say that? Because the Scriptures are clear. We forgive much. Because we've been forgiven much. Cain was of the evil one who took a life that wasn't his to take. Jesus, by contrast, gave up a life, gave up his own life in order to give life to those who didn't deserve it and who don't deserve it. We sang just a bit earlier, this the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us. What a love, what a cost. We stand forgiven at the cross. You see, to hate your brother is evidence that the love of Christ does not abide in you. If your life is characterized by this kind of living now, and you consider yourself a Christian, I beg you to repent this morning and remember what God in Christ gave up for you, that you may have life and have it to the fullest. Lay down your anger. Lay down your hate in your heart. Lay down your revenge seeking and take up the posture of your king who took on flesh and died for your sin and for mine. The contrast of evil and righteousness can be summarized like this. Evil hates, murders, and finds its root in the evil one, the devil. Righteousness loves, sacrifices, and finds its fulfillment in Christ. And then as we move into our next section, 
we find our only imperative in this passage. In verse 13, as John illustrates the contrast of the evil in the world and that of the righteousness of the believer. And he says to the believer, do not be surprised that the world hates you. It's very direct. He chooses not to say, do not be surprised if the world hates you. He says, do not be surprised that the world hates you. The world hates you because you bear the mark of Christ. Love. Love that's rooted in the sacrifice of Christ and is evidenced in your love for the brothers. You see, in a me-first world, an others-first theology will always find hostility. Always. John says in verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life if or because we love the brothers. So what's our confidence? Our confidence is Christ and our faith in him that is evidenced by our love for one another. I shared last week about uh, at, the, at the member meeting about one of our members who, actually Brandon, who's going to be uh, baptized here in just a bit. And it was following his coming to know the Lord that another brother asked him, hey, how do you know, uh, or, or what's the most significant thing that's happened to you since you came to, to know the Lord? And without hesitation, he said, I have love for other people that I didn't have before. Friends, that's the evidence, the love of the Father. And, and to a person, all three bore testimony that they genuinely love other people now because they've been new in Christ, because that's what the gospel does. It understands the love of the Father, and then it purposes the believer to love one another. When I love my brother, I don't see him as an inconvenience, but rather as an opportunity, an opportunity to do spiritual good in his life and he in mine. John Stott summarized this contrast well, saying, Hatred characterizes the world whose prototype is Cain. It originates in the devil, issues murder, and is evidence of spiritual death. Love characterizes the church whose prototype is Christ. It originates in God, issues self-sacrifice, and is evidence of eternal life. John gives his readers a caution to avoid. Do not be like Cain. Avoid the evil in this world and do not hate your brother. This provides a wonderful transition for us in the text as John seems to break from this thought to this next section, which is really all about assurance for the believer. But remember, some of the confusion in the churches that, Paul's, that Paul writes to is at the hand of these false teachers who are denying that the incarnate Son of God was actually Jesus. They also denied that, his, that there was no need for his death, there was, that his resurrection didn't happen, it wasn't necessary. And they were calling into question by their immoral living the need for righteousness as a result of those who would bear the name of Christ. So then it makes sense that John would write to bring assurance to the believer that they would hold fast to the message that they've heard from the beginning. Let's look now at verses 19 through 24, the confident assurance. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. 
And this is the commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he's given us. John uses that same phrase in verse 16 as he does in verse 19. He says, by this we shall know. We've heard that multiple times this morning. We know this to be true. The by this we shall know is tied to verse 18. And the charge to love the brothers in Christ as he's loved you. Love for your spiritual brother and sister is evidence that you truly are a child of God. That you bear the mark of a believer. But why do we need assurance? Well, because in verse 20, even our own heart brings charges against us. We know this to be true. This is the conscience that whispers those words that call into question the motive behind what we're doing. I once uh, had the opportunity to speak to a parachurch ministry, and, and I had been given the, the noble task of talking about the doctrine of sin for like four hours. And I remember kind of going into a break one time, and, and I was talking about serving one another out of the overflow of joy uh, in our heart. And uh, I made reference that, you know, sometimes I will serve in such a way that I really am not doing out of the overflow of joy, but I'm doing so that others will recognize that I'm serving and then give me praise, which is sin. And, uh, but I made that mistake of doing that as we went into a break, and there were things to do during the break. And it was like nobody wanted to get up and do anything because they were fearful now that everybody might think, well, I'm only doing this so that people will give me praise. I had to note that as a thing to adjust the next time I taught that. But know this, the dead man, the dead man in you is waging war against the spiritual man God made you to be. We need assurance. And so there's charge, charges to us to preach the gospel to ourselves. There are opportunities to get with another brother or sister in Christ and hear testimony of God's grace in their own life as you recall God's grace to you in your own life. We're to rest in the assurance that God's grace affords us as believers. And here's the beauty of it all. In the second half of verse 20, John reminds the believer that God is greater than our heart. Apart from God drawing you to himself, even while you were still a sinner, you would never have come. The line of, in come ye sinners says, come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded by the fall. If you tarry or wait until you're ready, you'll never come at all. You know, sometimes the ready we're waiting for is to clean up our act before the Lord could look upon us with love. At least that's what we think. But friend, the Lord loves you already and he bids you come. Is that you this morning? Are you tired? Are you tired of trying to present yourself as worthy before the Lord? Because of your choices or because of your lifestyle or perhaps because of your perception about God's love? No, the only thing that can make you acceptable in, in the Lord's sight is the perfect sacrifice of his son, Jesus. Verses 21 and 22 should be a great encouragement to you this morning and to me as they remind us that when our heart does not condemn us, it's because we're abiding in faithful obedience to him. And an abiding faith produces a bold faith to ask our gracious God and King who gives generously 
to all those who ask. Not only to ask, but this passage says to know that we receive what we ask. This is not a name it and claim it theology. In fact, it's abiding in God that will turn your request from you-centered to God-centered as your heart overflows to his love. Because drawing near to God will change your heart to want the things that God wants. Have you ever noticed after a prolonged season maybe in your own house growing up or your own house now or to know for your future? You know, as we sit and we pray for our, uh, pray with our children, particularly over meals and at bedtime, when they were younger, we would note that when we would ask them to pray, that they would pray nearly exactly what we prayed. They wanted to emulate their father. And so too, when the Lord gives us assurance and our heart does not condemn us as we're abiding in him, we begin to want to emulate the things our father wants. And so we pray for those things. Verses 23 and 24 is what he commands. And this is the commandment that we believe in the name of the son, Jesus Christ and love one another, just as he commanded us, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit that he has given us. Take note of the Trinitarian language there. We believe in God through the name of his son, Jesus Christ, by the spirit. We abide in God by keeping his commandments to love him and love others. These verses sound a lot like the great commandment that we referenced last week. When Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. To love your neighbor as yourself. That's what John is drawing our attention to in verses 23 and 24. And we're able to do this by the spirit of God that he has given us. And we know this because John 14, 15 through 17 says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I, Jesus, will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and, you, and will be in you. You know, it's no wonder that so many theologians call this the great exchange. For God takes our sin and gives us his grace. Grace to know him. Grace to follow him. Grace to be forgiven. And then a grace that indwells us by the spirit of the living God. To guide us into all righteousness. He takes our sin and exchanges it with his righteousness. The confident assurance finds its beginning and end in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it compels us to love God and to love one another, to obey his commands and to be totally satisfied in him. I wonder, are you satisfied in him today? Do you love in ways that we've talked about today? Do these things mark your life? Do you give until it costs you something, until it hurts? Are you giving and loving from the overflow of the love that God the Father has for you? Take courage today. For his word tells us that his mercies are new. The confident assurance is that God is greater than anything, even our own heart. 
Our confidence is in Christ. And he invites us to bring our requests to him. While the world may use many things to mark off what a believer is or what it's not, we know from his word that the mark of love is what marks off the believer. Love for God that manifests or overflows in love for one another. What a blessing this morning that we get to participate in witnessing the baptism of three who have come saying to you all and to us that this love marks their life. And so too it becomes our charge to help them live out this love in covenant relationship. May we as a body be increasingly marked by love. Love that we know because he first loved us. Let's pray together. Jesus, we're grateful for a love that overflows and manifests itself in love for one another. A love that originates in you through the sacrifice that you laid down your life and willingly took it up again. Father, that we would receive your love, that we would walk in obedience to it. And Father, thank you that you are greater than our heart, that you assure us that we belong to you, that you have given us your spirit that indwells us. And Father, we pray that we would walk today in obedience to you for your glory and for the good of our brothers and sisters. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.